Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Today we are very lucky to have a great trumpet player in the Boston Symphony Orchestra. His name is Mike Martin. He plays third utility in the symphony. And uh, thanks a lot for being here, man. Hey, absolutely. Pleasure. So um, the reason we wanted to talk to you, um, we were very excited with your, your online presence. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of goofy videos with, uh, uh, regarding or involving the World Series at mm -hmm. the St. Louis right. Symphony. Um, there was also the uh, video you did with Tom Hooten yeah. for the National Brass yeah, Symposium. Yeah. Um, what is so attractive about that aspect of like, getting information out to you? The perception of orchestral musicians at the professional level, to me, needs some tweaking. Um, the demographic of players in major orchestras um, is getting younger. Uh, you know, just, just in the Boston Symphony, the last, I think, 10 or 12 auditions we've hired, I don't think we've hired a single person over 40. You know? and wow. I think we've hired uh, six or seven people under 30. Uh, so the average age of the orchestra is coming down, not just here, but uh, everywhere. Uh, several friends of mine that I went to school with at Northwestern, uh, not just brass players, but string players, wind players, uh, are all just phenomenal musicians that are getting jobs in these really prestigious places and uh, they're not, you know, all of us together I think, uh, and not just in orchestras but in, uh, but in, in military bands and, and, and big bands and in the, in the theater world in New York and Broadway, all of these really young players are, are coming onto the scene that just can play anything and are also fantastic musicians but they haven't lost that kind of, that millennial vibe of not taking things too seriously. And, yeah. you know, I think it's hard to shirk an image that's 100 years old, but this very kind of stuffy, top collar, top button always buttoned, and, you know, we always wear ties really tight. And, um, I, you know, I think, I think it would do us well to kind of shake that. And there's, I don't really know anyone, especially here in Boston, in this orchestra, that, that is really like that. You know, pretty much everyone, everyone here is, is a lot more fun-loving and easygoing and, and has just these really just ridiculous and awesome senses of humor. So, you know, when I got here five years ago, I was, I was 24, I was the youngest person in the orchestra, and I, you know, I felt like I kind of, when I got here, I felt like, I, you know, I got to walk the line and, and kind of tiptoe and make sure I, you know, dot my I's and cross my T's because, you know, I want to get tenure and I don't want to offend anyone. And after a couple of weeks, you know, I, I, I got ribbed I got ribbed so hard when I got here, just for, for, for being young and for making really dumb, you know, dumb mistakes that like that young guys always make. <laughs> and and in, in a way it was, you know, it was a little embarrassing at, at times, but at the same time really disarming and, and quite a relief to see all of these guys that were not only great players and great musicians, um, but to see that they had just these awesome senses of humor as well. That's so, cool. That's great. Yeah. Um, so you think maybe the younger generation is easing things up like because in that video for example the World Series video you guys did um, everyone just seems like they're having a great time and just having a ball with the, the arrangement the back and forth thing is really creative even the old guys they're yeah, having a blast yeah that's the thing that's the thing is like I like to compare what we do to, to baseball um, uh, ironically enough in that you know it's, it's a really long season we play almost 200 concerts a year and um, and, but in the same way, it's it's still it still feels like a game. It still feels like uh, 
you know, I'm just a, I'm just a kid picking up my instrument every day. You know, that's how much fun we all have doing it. Uh, and I, I think the danger can be if you start to take it too seriously and you start to get focused on the wrong things that that, that image that has been kind of difficult for us to shirk for so long can creep its way in. But for everyone here and everyone in St. Louis, for sure, working with them on that project, it was very clear that, that all of those people, all of us just, we have so much fun doing what we do for a living and we're so fortunate. Uh, you know, I think it's important for us. That was kind of the spirit of that video. Um, kind of the underlying tone was, was, you know, we're so fortunate to have this opportunity both, you know, as, as players and doing this as a profession, but also it was, it was so fortuitous to have two storied baseball clubs playing each other, you know, in yeah. two cities with two phenomenal orchestras and with great brass sections, so. So you grew up with um, a dad in the music world. Mm -hmm. You grew up with a brother in the music world. Anybody else in the family? Uh, my mother, actually, Linda, yeah. she sings uh, in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Chorus. Oh. I think she's won four Grammys with them. Uh, yeah. So she's, uh, she's been in that for about 10 or 12 years, right about the time I went to school. So what was that like, growing up with such a, a saturated family? Yeah, I think uh, it was cool, you know. I, um, my dad always said I never really had a choice. <laughs> You know, not because they forced anything on me, but because I was, uh, it was so enjoyable. It was such a wonderful household. I mean, I did everything as a kid. Like, I was, I was exposed to music uh, constantly. I was exposed to, to drum corps, to orchestra, to jazz, to, to wind ensemble, uh, everything. Um, but I also, I, you know, played every sport imaginable. I played soccer, baseball, tennis, uh, golf growing up. Um, so, you know, my parents were, were very... Um, they were ex extremely, they were dedicated and determined that just because everyone else in the family was really music related, they were determined that that wasn't gonna dictate whether or not I went into music. So, and we had several talks uh, when I was finishing high school, deciding where I wanted to go to school about if this is something you really wanna do, it needs to be your choice, that, you know, not, doesn't need to be because Chris is so successful or your dad is so successful or your mom or whatever. It just needs to be something that you desperately want to do. You do you remember the first time you picked up a trumpet? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the summer before sixth grade. So my brother was, let's see, that was the summer of 96. So my brother was about to start his senior year at Eastman. And he was upstairs practicing. Um, so I went up and there was like an, a, an old like Getson cornet that my dad had. It had like an LBJ for the USA sticker and oh, sweet. On, on the case it was yeah, it was from like <laughs> it, it was from a ways back. So uh, and I heard my brother playing uh, I think some Chickless Flow studies or something and, and I'd been hearing him doing that for ten years. And, uh, I went up and I was like, I want you to teach me how to play the trumpet right now. He was like he was like, Okay. So he gave me this little cornet and taught me like one exercise, like how to go from like G to F sharp um, on this cornet and uh, I think it was an okay sound I made, you know, but I was like, yeah, this is cool. It feels really funny, but this is awesome. <laughs> so when did, when did the moment come when you decided you were going to school? Because you went to Northwestern. Mm -hmm. um, it was just sort of a thing. You never imagined yourself doing anything else. Was that the vibe? Yeah, I, th I think looking back on it, I, was, I, I didn't feel like I was too young to be making that decision at the time. But, but looking back on it, the fact that I made that decision at that point is is kind of mind-boggling to me, but I was, uh, I was 13 in eighth grade, um, and I was, uh, I had been playing golf since I was three, since I, you know, since basically I could walk and hold a golf club, and I was in love with that, and in love with the trumpet, and uh, in eighth grade, I think, 
I think I made Allstate. I made like the first chair in Allstate, and I'd never made Allstate. I'd like barely made like the little district honor <laughs> band in my town before that, and and all of a sudden I'm like eighth grade. You know, you're like you're the number one player in the state. And I was like I was like wow. And I'd worked really really hard, but um, through you know some through some tears and and just like anger and just you know when you're 13, 12, 13 years old, the the work ethic it takes to to, to be the best at something doesn't really jive with the fact that you want to watch cartoons every day. Right. Um, but when that happened, you know, and I, I had that success, and I look, looking back realized how much I had actually loved doing that work, uh, I think that kind of outweighed the enjoyment I had of playing golf, uh, you know, a couple of times a week and playing on the, my middle and high school golf team. So I was, yeah, I think it was, uh, it was like March or April of 1999. And I was not yet 14 years old, and I knew, oh, cool. and I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew that my brother had studied with Charlie and Barbara at Eastman, but that they were now at Northwestern. So my attention going into high school turned to my grades because I was never the world's best student. So I, I knew I had to get into Northwestern, I had to get into the trumpet studio first, and, and that, that was my main focus. And then a, a, a narrow second behind that was to make sure my grades were such that. I could get into the university like that. Yeah. So. When you first got in the orchestra, did any funny things happen? Any funny stories? Tell me something funny. Yeah, so I started in, uh, at Tanglewood in the summer, which at the time seemed like a great idea. Um, but going from college and freelancing, where you play maybe like two concerts a month for the Tanglewood season, where you play three concerts a week and they're all different programs, was, was a little daunting. So you find yourself in some uncomfortable situations as a 24-year-old. Um, so we were doing Mahler II with Michael Tilson Thomas, and it was, it was literally the first concert I ever played as a professional musician in the Boston Symphony. Uh, so we were in rehearsal. It was like, I want to say it was like 97 degrees outside. You know, we're, we're in the shed at Tanglewood, so there's no air conditioning. We're all just, just sweltering. And he was working on something in the second movement, and I didn't play, I don't think I play anything in the second movement, playing fourth on that. Uh, so I was just, I was just kind of, he was working on something with the strings and I was like kind of following along. I had my score with me and I was just, you know, being very, you know, a really good new member of the orchestra. I was doing, you know, going the extra mile. I was just kind of following along and he was singing and he got to a spot and he kind of, he was singing this spot where he wanted to go back to start. And uh, he, he didn't know where it was off the top of his head. So he asked the, the front desk's strings. He was like, he was like, da, 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 what, oh, what? Where is that? Where is that? What number do I want to go back to? And before anyone had a chance to answer, I was looking right at it, and I just yelled out, 20, from the back of the orchestra. <laughs> and the whole brass section just went, what? And I just, I like shrunk to the size of a pea. I was sweating <laughs> even more. Everyone just kind of got hushed. Tilson Thomas didn't notice, thankfully, and he just kind of kept going. But the rest <laughs> of the brass section, I still, they still call me the number 20 to this day. Uh, so they both—they were just jabbing me left and right. They, Tom Rolfs was like, "Mike, Mike, do, do you need anything? Can I get you anything? If you're running this rehearsal, I don't want you to get tired." Toby Off was like, "Mike, how, Mike, how do I sound? Do I sound good?" <laughs> you know, Jamie Somerville turned around and was like, "Was like, is there anything else you need? Do you, should we go back to 19 instead of 20?" I—that was one of those moments where it was—I was supremely embarrassing, and it actually—it's very cathartic for me to get it out and let the world know how, that it happened, but. Some good old-fashioned hazing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was, and it was also kind of, you know, disarming 
disarming at the same time. So after <laughs> after a couple of stiff drinks that night, I woke up the next morning feeling a little bit better about myself. But that was <laughs> that was a good way to get initiated to the orchestra. Um, I, something that a lot of people want to know, since you're so young with so much success, um, is what your audition was like. Can you give me the rundown without or releasing too much confidential information? Sure. Yeah. Or feel uh, free too if you want. If you yeah. want to get, tell us anything awesome. Uh, so uh, this was my. Um, I think this was my 15th audition. Uh, I think I think that's right. Yeah, 15th audition, um, and I had auditioned here twice before, uh, and the f the first time was for uh, uh, assistant principal, the job that Tom Siders now plays, and I made the finals in that. So uh, the way we do it here is if you, uh, whatever round you kind of make it to, you're the, for subsequent auditions. If you don't win. Um, any job in the section that there's an audition for after that, you get invited to the round previous. So for, for my audition here um, that I ended up winning, um, I was invited to the semifinals. Uh, and the audition was actually for second trumpet. Um, Peter Chapman had just retired, and uh, the job Ben Wright now has. So I played my semifinal round, and um, I think it, it was pretty standard. We, our, our goal here in our audition process, I, I think I can divulge this without breach of contract or anything, but our goal in our audition process or early on in the prelims and the, in the semis is, is always to, to hear everyone give their absolute, um, the absolute best example of themselves. So our lists are never super strenuous that we kind of pride ourselves, in the brass section at least, we pride ourselves on the, you know, we want you to play well. So the semifinal list was very standard. It was, you know, pictures of Leonore and Mahler Five, and uh, I think like Carmen was in there, a low thing, because it was a second trumpet audition. And, and so that was fine. And then um, uh, I felt like I played really well. You know, they were like, can we hear this again, blah, blah, which is always, almost always a good sign. And I felt like I was playing great. And, um, and go down, you know, they, they come down and let us know, like, we want to hear these people again in the finals. And my number was called, which was great. Um, but they told us, they were like, just so you know, don't, you know, this could be a pretty long process. Um, so you could have one or two or even three rounds left today. So don't, you know, don't overtax yourself between now, you know, on the lunch break, don't play a bunch. And the committee is going to keep that in mind as well. You know, we, we, we want you to stay as fresh as possible. So it's like, great, you know, it was a super healthy environment and um, felt very encouraged. So I went and grabbed lunch, had like half of a salad because that's all I can ever eat on audition days because I'm just nervous. Um, it's like 2 o'clock, I draw the, f I'm the first person in finals. And there's, I think there's five of us or six of us. Um, so I go down, and uh, after I finish lunch, I warm up for like five or ten minutes. They come and get me, and I'm like, okay, I feel, I feel pretty good. I feel fresh. You know, like they said, don't overplay, so I feel good. So I get out there, and uh, the way we do auditions in the finals is, is we don't release a list, or at least we didn't in that one, maybe, or maybe they did, and I just didn't look at it, <laughs> which is the way I prefer to take auditions. I don't want to know what's coming. You know, I'd rather just take one excerpt at a time and stay in the moment and all that, but... So he turned. So he started, and it was something standard, pictures, whatever. He turned it, um, something else pretty standard, you know, like Petrushka or something. And then we started getting into the second trumpet excerpts. Played one, went fine. Played another one, went fine. And before I realized that I've played like 14 excerpts, and it's just it won't stop. Like I play and something like from Mahler six, or and then followed by something from like Dvorak eight. You know, it's like just all over the horn, scattered completely, and like. I, I, I lost track eventually. Like I think I stopped counting at nine, and then we did. I felt like half a dozen more, and I walked off the stage and like looked at my watch and realized I had just played for like 20 minutes. 
And I was like, what was that that he said about staying fresh? So, and I felt, you know, I, I missed a few things. It wasn't a no perfect audition, but I, uh, you know, I, I was kind of 50-50. I was like, mm. I was like, maybe, you know, maybe we'll <laughs> see. So they come down and they tell us uh, that uh, Ben Wright has actually won the audition for Second Trumpet, um, but they'd like to hear three of us uh, for Fourth Trumpet in the, in the eventuality that Ben, um, you know, gets tenure and all that. So they, they were, instead of kind of holding a separate audition altogether, uh, they wanted to hear a few of us that they were really interested in um, to fill that vacancy in the event that the committee voted to do that. So they took a separate vote and the committee said, yeah, let's, let's hear those players for that spot only. So there were three of us, it was unscreened, played uh, with Tom Rolfs, just some, some relatively standard second trumpet stuff, Beethoven Violin Concerto, um, Beethoven Five. And we get to Beethoven Five, which is the last thing, played a couple of other things, and we start the last movement, and you know, m most people know Beethoven is in C major, um, you know, it's, it's very famously in C major. And I looked at the last movement and we started and it starts in this really beautiful, this grand C major chord, the first brass entrance. And for whatever reason, I decided that it was gonna be in D instead, up a whole step. So uh, instead of a really beautiful C and E, I, you hear a C and an F sharp, which is just <laughs> the most grating interval you could possibly imagine. And I played it so convincingly and so strongly that it kind of scared Tom, and he stopped and like, but tried to play another note at the same time, and was, and I freaked out. And I, like I was like I was like I just blew it. I like totally blew it. And he he was like it's okay. Tom was like calm down. And he whispered. He's like it's in C, <laughs> like a whisper, but loud enough for the committee to hear and kind of snicker. Um, we played it and the rest of it was fine and uh, so it so obviously it all worked out so yeah. you, you can miss notes or mistranspose <laughs> right like and still still do well so that's awesome yeah so yeah. what did you learn along the way what what is necessary what is not necessary what do people need to work on um, how do they diagnose themselves what is what is auditions I guess is a good question I, I, I would say the thing that I notice the most in students that I work with, and, and whether they're, uh, you know, whether they're uh, students at New England Conservatory or Boston University, who are, who are, you know, some of the leading young players in the country, um, or if it's, uh, you know, if it's our brass players at the Cavaliers or, or students in my father's high school band, people are so uh, averse. I find consistently to listening to themselves, recording themselves, and listening with as critical an ear as they can, because it. It, and I, I, I still struggle with doing this consistently um, because it can be humbling to listen to yourself 100% objectively. So I, I, would, I started, for this audition in particular, um, I was working on some things just in my own fundamental playing that, you know, we all, no one ever wakes up 100% every day, you know. And if you do, you can be guaranteed tomorrow it's not going to be 100%. So we all have the things that we're working on, and I, I, had, I had my own little things, but... Um, I would say the biggest difference in this audition and others, and I'd made, I'd made the finals, I think, in seven or eight auditions and, and in different capacities for second trumpet, for, for principal trumpet in San Francisco, and for assistant here, and uh, you know, second in Baltimore, and um, all kinds of different arrays of, of styles of playing, but I think for me what separated this experience from all the others was the fact that I had been so diligent every single day about recording myself, playing through a mock audition round, and you know, 
almost to the point of like turning the lights out so it was pitch black. So I really created as much anonymity as possible for the sounds I was hearing on the recording and being as critical as I possibly could. And that's something I actually, uh, I know that, um, I know Mark Inouye does a lot and that my brother has done a lot in his preparations is he just vigorously and religiously records himself. Yeah. So because once you get to the point that you objectively can say about your own playing, yeah, I would I would buy that CD or I would hire that person. Uh, it you can you can be pretty sure that most, if not all, people around you are going to feel the same way if you're really objective. You know, yeah. So. Um, do you have any funny audition stories? Uh, yeah. So, uh, the, so the, so two days, but actually about this audition that I ended up winning uh, two days before. I was, I was living in Chicago, and two days before I flew out here, I think the audition was on a Monday, on a Saturday morning, like, like late Friday night, uh, or early Saturday, I started, uh, my throat started to get really sore, because it was in February, it was Chicago it was windy, and you know, I was not taking great care of myself. So I was coming down with strep throat two oh, days before this audition, which is, you know, this, which is perfect timing. Uh, so I, you know, I call, I call our family doctor at home, and I'm like, can you prescribe me a, prescribe me a Z-Pack, some steroids to try and knock this out in the next couple of days? He was like, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, go pick it up in an hour. So I did that. I started taking medication, and, and you know, by the time the audition came around, it felt a little bit better, but I was still very much, you know, throat, uh, throat and everything. It made it hard to breathe. Uh, as if that wasn't enough, Sunday morning, but before I flew out, uh, before I flew out Sunday evening, um, I was eating a cookie, and it was this—it was like a peanut butter cookie, and and I bit down into something hard, and it like felt like a peanut, like maybe there was like a, like a whole peanut in this peanut butter cookie, and I was like like back there, and it was like I was like, oh, that's weird. why would they put a whole peanut in this thing? And I I like kind of spit some of the cookie out, and my tooth was in my hand, from like the back of my mouth, like my molar. Your tooth fell out. My tooth fell out of my mouth, and I had strep throat about 24 hours before coming to take this audition. And I was like, what? I was, I was like, really? What, what am I supposed to do? Can I put my tooth back in my head? No, I can't. So I called my brother, um, and I was like, uh, do you have a dentist you recommend? Because he knew, you know, I was playing for him every day, and he, he, he knew I was coming down with strep and, like, really sick. and. And I told him my tooth fell out of my mouth, and he was he was like, yeah, yeah. Here's the number of my dentist. Go see him today. You know, he, you know, most of the people in the Chicago Symphony go to this guy. He was great, and he was having lunch with Taga Larson at the time, fourth trumpet in Chicago, and uh, he told me later, like a couple of days later, that he hung up the phone and just and Taga asked what happened, and he told him, and Taga just looked at him and was like, you know, sometimes you're just not meant to win an audition. And, oh, uh, and. You know, strep throat, to your tooth falls out of your head. Like, what are you supposed to do? So, I, you know, we had emergent. He, like, kind of, it was a, an emergency thing. And it, what it ended up being was that I had a crown put on when I was really little. And that, like, the glue in that crown ended up, you know, failing and coming out or whatever. So, and that's, and that's what ended up happening. It wasn't, you know, my dental hygiene isn't such that I literally have tooth falling out of my nose. <laughs> so that's the secret but, to winning auditions. So apparently the secret is distract yourself with as many unfortunate circumstances as possible. <laughs> Great. You should be good. Let's talk about what you do outside of trumpet. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard rumors that you do lots of CrossFit training. Mm -hmm. uh, you play golf like you mentioned earlier. Yep. Um, are those pretty much the two big things that you really enjoy? Um, I, would say, I would say those are two of the three. Uh, uh, CrossFit is something I started doing in 2009. 
was introduced to it uh, through a friend from high school and uh, just absolutely became obsessed with it. Um, and I've been, so it's been about five and a half years now I've been doing it. I've been coaching for three years, so kind of very part-time on the side. I, um, I coach at uh, CrossFit Arsenal here in town and a little bit at CrossFit Boston. Um, and, but I'm also, I also golf as well. It was, golf was, you know, for me it was either golf or trumpet. And I figured I could always play golf on the weekends, which I've kind of continued to do. Um, but since I've, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have the stability of a job in the orchestra, I've been able to focus more on, on golf. And, um, you know, I got my handicap down and down. Trying to get it down below one and a half, because once you get to 1.4, then you can, you can try to qualify for the US Open. Which is which is a goal just to be able to qualify. I have no aspirations of playing <laughs> in the U.S. Open because I just, that's not possible. You don't want the fame and the money. Just, yeah, it's too much. You yeah. know, just like a lot of people want that, and, and uh, <laughs> I think they're just kind of shallow for wanting that much money. You know, I'm I, I don't need millions of dollars. I just need one million dollars. So. Um, um, uh, you're also involved with drum corps, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the uh, so I'm the brass co-caption head at the Cavaliers Drum View Corps in Rosemont, Illinois, and um, I spent uh, eight years before that with the Phantom Regiment in Rockford, Illinois. Um, so it's a little bit of a strange departure because those two have, have historically been rivals, um, you know, friendly rivals, but rivals nonetheless. Um, but uh, it was the right move to make at the, at the right time for me and, and my father, who I teach with. And uh, it's something that I've, I really value because I love, I love working with students, especially young uh, high school, college age students. Um, and the energy and passion that, that those guys, that the guys in the Cavaliers bring to their rehearsal and their preparation is it's electrifying and, and extremely addictive. Uh, and I, I, it's hard to find anything that compares to that kind of atmosphere where everyone's united in a single goal. Um, and it's something that I get to do with my dad, which is, which is really special for me because uh, you know, my parents still live in Atlanta. And, I'm up here, my brother's in Chicago, and it's a way for my dad and me and, and my mom when she's able to come up um, to kind of all meet in one place and do one thing at the same time that we all love. It's my father founded the Spirit of Atlanta in 1976, um, so he's been involved in drum corps for oh, 40 years now almost. So, um, What's the biggest thing you can, you can learn from drum corps? Um, what, what can the orchestral trumpet player take away from several summers doing? Yeah. Hard work. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I, I use uh, every day, and I, this is not an exaggeration or, um, or <laughs> at all false, but I use what I learned in drum corps every day because the, in terms of ensemble, balance and, um, and, and blend and timing, uh, playing in an orchestra is, is incredibly similar to what you do on a drum corps field. But when you're doing it on a drum corps field, the environmental demands are so extreme that once you're sitting on a stage, the solution for ensemble and timing and balance problems uh, are, are actually extremely manageable. Solutions are easy to find. So you know when you're working with a brass section of 80 players that have to balance with uh, a marching percussion section of 25, and then a front ensemble section that has mallets and auxiliary percussion instruments and synthesizers with all of these crazy sounds that are amplified and you have to figure out a way to balance those in different stadiums whether it's Lucas Oil where the Colts play or a small high school stadium in the middle of a week at a show you know you, you have to use your ears in a way that it, 
is so much more um, finessed and nuanced than you do just sitting in, in one brass section. And granted, playing in a, playing in a symphony brass section uh, has its own demands and challenges and rewards. Um, but what I find in, in teaching drum corps, uh, especially at this level with the Cavaliers and um, with the great guys that we have and the great staff that we have, is uh, is it's kind of it, it's kind of like playing in a professional orchestra on the most massive steroids you can find. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I got one question. You can you, one last question. Big question for you. You can paint this however you want. You can make it up, or you can whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, walk us through the most amazing musical experience you've ever had in your life oh, all right uh, so I was uh, this 2006 I just finished my first summer as a Tanglewood fellow and um, there's a trumpet player from uh, Sufjan Stevens band Sufjan Stevens is this um, this indie rocker uh, indie like pop piano rock and uh, the trumpet player from his band um, his name is CJ Camariri uh, approached me and Ethan Bensdorf, who's um, my roommate and one of my groomsmen, who's now second trumpet in the New York Philharmonic, uh, after we'd played this kind of crazy Mark Anthony Turnage piece at a chamber music concert and asked us, he was like, hey, do you guys know who Sufjan Stevens is? And we were like, he was like, we were like yeah, totally. Um, he was like, do you guys want to play, play in the band on like one concert? We're coming through Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, we'd love to have you guys play. We're, you know, we, we need a second trumpet player for those two shows. You guys want to split it? We were like, yeah, definitely. So Ethan played the Milwaukee show and I played the Chicago show. And that concert was, I mean, it wasn't a concert, it was a show in every sense of the word. Uh, we all came out wearing like, like just kind of these like utility custodian outfits, but with like butterfly wings and like these crazy like burlesque masquerade masks, the whole band. And it was like a, like a you know, 12, 14 piece band. Sufjan came out playing banjo and he's got backup singers and there's, there's two trumpets, saxophone I think, uh, a couple of violins, drums, bass. And it was in the Riviera Theater, which holds like maybe 1,200 people. And there had to have been at least 1,500 at the show. And everyone in this band can play. I mean, this is not like, this is not just like a pick up the local musicians that want to play a gig for a hundred bucks. I mean, it didn't pay a whole lot, but it didn't matter. What it, <laughs> what it didn't pay in, in money, it made up for, more than made up for an experience. And the, the electricity of that group was extremely similar to what I, what I experienced here in the orchestra um, in some of our bigger concerts and certainly uh, in the drum corps activity and some of our bigger performances and bigger shows. Everyone was so united and on the same page to, you know, they're all just dedicated to the groove of the concert and that, and that individual tune. We did one tune in particular called, uh, called Snowbird and it was like 12 minutes long and it was some of the loudest playing I've ever done because we're battling with, you know, drums and guitars that are all amped in this small theater uh, and it was, I mean, the the audience, the crowd, how engaged they were, and they all knew every single word. And it's one of the most, if you don't know it, I highly recommend checking it out, Sufjan Stephen Snowbird. It's one of the most just purely beautiful um, rock tunes you're gonna find anywhere. And it was uh, the unification of the group, how kind of solidified and, and dedicated and consistently everyone was devoted to the same goal was um, surprising in that kind of environment, you know? So, uh, I would say 
every concert I've played in the BSO has been great, and uh, I've got a lot of great drum corps memories, but playing, playing a single show with Sufjan Stevens was, was probably my uh, most incredible memory. Yeah. Okay, we end all of our interviews with what we call the monster round. Right. They're uh, rapid fire questions, so short answers, one word if you can. Right. Uh, let's just blow through them, okay? Okay. Uh, bowling or racquetball? Bowling. Times New Roman or Ariel? Times New Roman. <laughs> Favorite place to eat in Boston? Chipotle. <laughs> What's your handicap? Uh, we talked about that earlier. 1.8. Uh, your max squat? Back squat? Yeah. 305. In kilometers per hour, how fast can you run? 24. V-neck undershirts or crew neck undershirts? Oh god, V-neck. Best lead trumpet player of all time? John Faddis. Ella Fitzgerald or Billie Holiday? Billie Holiday. Uh, favorite place to play the trumpet? Symphony Hall, Boston. Your best excerpt? Pictures. Your worst? Pictures. <laughs> Proudest accomplishment? Uh, marrying my wife. Aw. Most people you've ever played for? 25,000 DCI Finals, 2004. Costco or BJ's? Costco. You're standing on top of the Empire State Building wearing a corset. Chipotle. It's, Sorry. That works. Best car you've ever driven? Um, BMW M3. <laughs> Wingsuit or hot air balloon? Hot air balloon. Longest time you've taken off trumpet? 10 days. Scarlett Johansson or Natalie Portman? Scarlett Johansson. Who is the greatest singer of your generation? Renee Fleming. Uh, the best foreign orchestra? Ooh, the Unifilharmonic. What is the most beautiful melody ever written? Uh, I'd say uh, the first movement of Brahms' violin concerto. Mike Martin, it's really nice to meet you. Thank you for sitting down with us. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure.